Well, if you've been with us at Riverview here for these last few weeks in this Christmas season, you know that we've been looking at this series we're calling Reasons for the Season. Reasons for the Season. Reasons to believe the Christmas story as it's told in the Bible. And I've really enjoyed this series. I've really enjoyed studying for it and presenting it to you each week. I hope it's been beneficial and helpful to you as well as we've gone through these different weeks We're going to conclude this series actually at our Christmas Eve service on Tuesday evening by looking at the Incarnation. Are there good reasons to believe the Incarnation? Or how does the Incarnation even work? How can God and man, how can Jesus be fully God, fully man in one person? We're going to talk about that on Tuesday. But today we're going to look at Another question of, is Jesus God? Uh, there's, There's two times each year, I think, when the secular news media likes to write about Jesus and publish stories and articles about Jesus. Can you guess those two times of the year? One is, of course, Christmas, the other being Easter. At Easter, it's common to read news articles and magazine articles about whether or not Jesus actually died on a cross and rose from the dead. And at Christmas, it's common to read articles about whether or not Jesus actually existed. Was he a real historical figure? Was he really born on December 25th? And so on. And these articles uh, about how Christmas started often as a pagan holiday, people will write about that and on and on, and how uh, culture was appropriated by Christians, and it's all designed to cast doubt on the biblical story of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels. I think Christmas time must be kind of a slow news cycle, so news outlets need to trot out the same stories year after year. Did Jesus really exist? Was there a historical man named Jesus? And I think that's at least something of a legitimate question. Did the man, Jesus Christ, actually exist? Obviously, his actual existence is pretty important to the foundations of our faith. Because if he didn't exist, then he didn't die for sins, and he didn't rise from the dead, and our faith is empty. But thankfully, the overwhelming historical evidence that exists has led virtually every historical scholar to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was an actual figure in human history, to the extent that non-Christian scholars of history are convinced that Jesus was an historical figure. Let me say that again. Non-Christian scholars are convinced that Jesus was a historical figure to the extent that those who would deny that Jesus ever existed have been relegated to the same intellectual position as those who would deny that the Holocaust happened or those who would say that the moon landing was faked or that the earth is flat. It's just anti-intellectual to say that The man Jesus never existed because the historical evidence is so overwhelming that he did. Let me give you some examples of four non-Christian scholars who believed, based on historical evidence, that Jesus existed and that any theory that posits that he did not exist is ridiculous. One scholar named Rudolf Bultmann, whom you may have heard of, Uh, He says, of course, the doubts as to whether Jesus really existed is unfounded and not worth refutation. No sane person can doubt that Jesus stands as founder behind the historical movement whose first distinct stage is represented by the oldest Palestinian community. Gunther Bunkman 
says, to doubt the historical existence of Jesus at all was reserved for unrestrained, tendentious criticism of modern times into which it is not worthwhile to enter here. Another scholar, Willie Markson, says, I am of the opinion, and it is an opinion shared by every serious historian, that the theory that Jesus never lived or that he was a purely mythical figure is historically untenable. One more quote for you from Michael Grant. He says, to sum up, modern critical methods fail to support the Christ myth theory. It has again and again been answered and annihilated by first-rank scholars. In recent years, no serious scholar has ventured to postulate the non-historicity of Jesus, or at any rate, very few, and they have not succeeded in disposing of the much stronger, indeed very abundant, evidence to the contrary. And then one final uh, little scholar citation for you. It's from a man named Bart Ehrman, who some of you may have heard of, who is probably the most well-known New Testament scholar alive today, and he is not a Christian, and he actually wrote an entire book arguing reasons why Jesus existed. So historians who are not Christians believe with absolute certainty that the man, Jesus Christ, existed, that he was an historical figure. And they say that there is overwhelming historical evidence. Well, like what? Well, there are three primary sources of evidence for the existence of Jesus Christ outside of the Bible. The first and most well-known is the Jewish historian named Josephus, who lived from 37 to about 100 AD. Now, as a Jew, Josephus was not a Christ follower, but he was a historian, and he recorded that a man named Jesus lived at the time, and he was a wise teacher, and he was executed by Pontius Pilate. And then Josephus actually has another reference to Jesus in his ancient history, but it's actually related to the execution of Jesus' brother, James. Josephus gives an account of James' execution, and he says that James was the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. Now remember, Josephus is not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian, and he records the existence of the man, Jesus Christ. And so scholars see this evidence, and they give it quite a bit of weight. Another bit of historical evidence comes by way of a Roman historian named Tacitus, who lived from 56 to 120 AD. Tacitus recorded in his history that after the Roman emperor Nero was blamed for the fires that ravaged Rome, Nero wanted to shift the blame onto someone else. He needed a scapegoat. And so Tacitus records that Nero chose, quote, Christians who were hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius has been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. So Tacitus, a non-Christian Roman historian, records the existence of Jesus and even his death. And so scholars today look at this as weighty historical evidence for the existence of Jesus. And then finally, a Roman governor named Pliny the Younger, who lived from 61 to 112 AD, wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan about how he should deal with these people called Christians who refused to worship the Roman gods and instead insisted on worshiping the man Jesus Christ 
as though he were a god. And so Pliny the Younger writes to, uh, to the emperor Trajan and says, what should I do with these people? And this is a historical letter that we still have in rec- on record. So modern historians consider this ancient historical evidence in the context of history, and it is abundantly clear that there was a historical man named Jesus Christ. So the existence of Jesus is a historical slam dunk. And again, to deny his physical historical existence is regarded in scholarly circles as an anti-intellectual exercise. You can know for certain that Jesus Christ existed historically. So then what's the problem? If the historical existence of Jesus is so plain and obvious to see, then why don't those four historians that I quoted earlier believe? Why aren't they Christians? See, the rub isn't if Jesus existed. That's a historical fact. Rather, the question that causes division is who is Jesus? Was he merely a wise man who instigated a religious and cultural revolution that challenged the Jewish and Roman religious establishments? Or was he God in the flesh? This is the question that divides the scholars. For instance, Bart Ehrman, whom I referenced just a minute ago, again, who is not a Christian, he says this in the first chapter of his book in which he argues for the existence of Jesus. Ehrman says, Jesus did exist. He may not have been the Jesus that your mother believes in, or the Jesus of the stained glass window, or the Jesus proclaimed by the Vatican, the Southern Baptist Convention, or the local megachurch, but he did exist. See, for Ehrman, the question of Jesus' existence is a foregone conclusion. But is Jesus God? Not so fast. Noted biologist and atheist Richard Dawkins said this about the historical Jesus in an interview just last month. When he was asked, do you think Jesus was a real person? Dawkins answered, most scholars I've talked to say that he probably was. It's not surprising that there was a wandering preacher named Jesus. What would be surprising would be if he raised Lazarus from the dead and walked on water. That, of course, did not happen. See, for Dawkins, the important question is not, did Jesus exist, but is Jesus God? And for Dawkins, the answer to that question is, of course not. Of course he isn't God. You see, non-Christians believe that 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was born. Christians believe that 2,000 years ago, the God-man named Jesus, who is the Christ, was born. He was fully man. He had all the same traits and abilities, limitations, needs, and desires that you and I have as human beings. He had a family. He had parents and brothers and sisters and friends. You won't find any scholar or historians who disagree with this. Everyone agrees that Jesus was a real man. But what you will find disagreement about is the Christian claim that Jesus was also fully God. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was both fully God and fully man in one person. Not two persons, but one person. 
A fully human nature and a fully divine nature. And you can see that throughout the Gospels. Verses that were read earlier in this service from Luke 2, 11 and 12 tell us about this very thing. This is what the angels tell the shepherds. They say, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Did you catch that? The contrast? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, God has come. But then how will you find the Savior, Christ the Lord God? Wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. The angels declared that God has come as a human baby, fully human, fully God. This is what John says in the opening verses of his gospel. In verse 1 of John 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the Word, was in the beginning with God, and He was God. And then that Word, Jesus, became flesh, and He dwelt among us. So the Bible teaches us that Jesus, the man, is also the Word. He is God. But is there any evidence of this? Any historical evidence, like the historical evidence of Jesus' physical existence? Why, yes, there is. Just like there are ancient historical sources that prove that Jesus was a man of history, there are likewise ancient historical sources that show us that Jesus is God. And those historical sources are compiled in a book known as the Bible. Now, wait a minute, though. The Bible isn't a history book. It's a religious book, right? No, it is a history book. The events of the Bible must be grounded in history in order to be true. God acts within human history, so the events recorded in the Bible are statements of presumed historical fact. Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger all wrote about Jesus in history, having never once met him. Well, in the Bible, we have historical accounts of all the things Jesus said and did, written by people who not only met him, but were his closest friends. Shouldn't we take those historical accounts seriously? For instance, a man named Matthew a disciple of Jesus, wrote a historical account of Jesus' life. And Matthew was an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' life. Mark, a follower of Jesus, wrote a historical account as an eyewitness of the events of Jesus' life. Luke, a follower of Jesus, but someone who probably never personally met him, Luke interviewed eyewitnesses and then wrote a historical account of Jesus' life. John, another disciple of Jesus, wrote a historical account of Jesus' life and then wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation, which all tell us about the God-man, Jesus. Should we listen to John as a historical source? Peter, 
Another disciple of Jesus wrote two letters about Jesus and then preached about the death and resurrection of Jesus, the God-man. Paul, an enemy of Jesus, was converted to believe that Jesus was God by meeting Jesus in the middle of the road after Jesus had died and resurrected. And he went on to write at least 13 books of the Bible that all declare that Jesus is fully God, fully man. Historical sources that show us the divinity of this Jesus. They are historical accounts. They report history. Well, what history do they tell us about? First, they tell us what the man Jesus said about himself. Their historical account of Jesus' words what did Jesus say? Well, he claimed to be God. In John 15 or 5:18, Jesus claimed that God was his father, making him equal with God. John 8:58, Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I am," saying that he has existed as God for eternity past. John 10:30, Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." John 14, 9, Jesus says, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In the Bible, there are numerous historical accounts of Jesus claiming to be God in the flesh. So how should we regard those historical claims? How should we regard this ancient history recorded in these documents? Well, actually, some healthy skepticism is probably warranted. And the reason for this is that there were numerous charlatans in Jesus' day and age who claimed to be God or who claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, there are still charlatans in the 21st century who claim to be God or claim to be the Messiah. So Jesus' historical claim to be God in the flesh wasn't unique at that time. There were plenty of people in his day and age who made similar claims. So a historical account of the man Jesus claiming to be God isn't necessarily persuasive. But what is more persuasive is the historical account of what Jesus did to back up his claims. You see, Jesus wasn't just all talk. He was action too. In other words, Jesus backed up his claims with actions. He put his money where his mouth is, so to speak. Because also recorded in the historical accounts that are in the Bible is the record of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus performed miracles in order to validate his claims of divinity. He would teach people. He would say things like what we already read. He would say, I and the Father are one. And they would say, yeah, prove it. And he would heal the sick. He would multiply food. He would raise the dead. He would walk on water. And he would say then, how was that? <laughs> is that proof enough for you? Although, maybe Jesus wasn't that snarky, but I tend to think that he was. And in the Bible, there is a historical record of these miracles occurring. See, you don't have to take Jesus' word for it that he was God. Let the miracles he performed convince you that the baby born in Bethlehem was fully man and fully God and grew to be the man Jesus Christ who did these amazing things. One miracle in particular comes to mind from Luke chapter 5. Jesus was teaching in a home. He was just in somebody's home and he was healing the sick. And there was a man who was paralyzed from the neck down who sought Jesus for healing, but he obviously couldn't get to Jesus on his own, so his friends carried him there on a stretcher. But the house was packed. 
There's no way that they were going to get in to see Jesus. So his friends climb up to the top of the roof. They dig a hole through the roof and lower the man down through the roof to Jesus. Jesus takes one look at the man and he says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And then when the the religious leaders hear this, they're angry. Because the scriptures say that no one can forgive sins but God alone. And so Jesus essentially says to them, I have the authority to forgive sins because I am God. And to prove to you that I am God, then he looks at the man who's paralyzed and he says, stand up, get your stretcher, and go home. And the man does it. A man who just seconds before was paralyzed from the neck down, stands up and goes his way on his own two feet. And Jesus looks at the religious leaders and winks. I don't know if he did wink or not. I like to think that he did. But the miracles Jesus performed backed up his claims to be God, to be the Messiah. And if you've read the four Gospels in the Bible, then you know that they are chock full of historical accounts of Jesus performing miracles. There once was a time when Jesus' own cousin, John the Baptist, wasn't really sure if Jesus really was who he said he was. So he asked Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you the Messiah or should we wait for another? And you know how Jesus responded to him? He said, just think about what you've seen me do. Blind people see again, deaf people hear again, lepers are healed, the dead are raised back to life. What do you think? See, the miracles that Jesus did prove that his claims are true. And if they weren't true, they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any miracles. The Bible is a historical account of the things Jesus said and did that prove that he is not just a man, but he is the God-man. He is fully God and fully man. See, did Jesus exist? Absolutely. And anyone, any historical scholar will tell you that he did. Is Jesus God? Absolutely. And so many ancient sources in the Bible will tell you that he is. But what's interesting is that the same historians who will gladly take the word of Josephus and Tacitus and Pliny the Younger about the existence of Jesus the man will not take the word of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about Jesus the God-man. Why not? Is it because the Bible isn't a reliable historical document? Not at all. In fact, it's quite possibly the most historically reliable document in the history of the world. There are numerous archaeological finds and discoveries being made every year that validate the historicity of the biblical narrative. Here's a little project you can do this afternoon after lunch. Go home And just Google biblical archaeology 2019 and you will see all of the biblical archaeological discoveries that have just been made in the last year and every single one validates the historical narrative, the historical timeline of the Bible. Just go home and do that this afternoon. Biblical archaeology 2019 and you will see for yourself. Also, do you remember our friends Josephus and Tacitus? Josephus was a Jewish historian who wrote his history sometime in the first century AD. But get this, 
the oldest copy that we have on record of what he wrote is from about 1000 AD. That means that his writing was copied and copied and copied for centuries. And the oldest copy we have of what Josephus wrote is about 900 years after he wrote it. The same thing is true of Tacitus, who probably wrote his Roman history in the second century AD. The oldest copy on record of his writing is from about 1000 AD. That's eight to 900 years after he wrote it. But the writings of the New Testament are quite different. Like Josephus and Tacitus, the New Testament was written around the first and second centuries. Unlike Josephus and Tacitus, the oldest copies we have on record of the New Testament manuscripts dates all the way back to sometime in the first or second century, right around the time of the events they describe. Do you understand what I'm saying? Josephus wrote in about 100 AD, but the oldest copy we have of what he wrote is eight or 900 years older than that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote around 100 AD. The oldest copy we have of what they wrote is about only 100 years after the time that they wrote. That's the difference. And so the, the historians say, oh yes, let's believe Josephus, even though what we have from him is so much older, but we have a copy of John from right here. Mm, we're skeptical. Why? Why are we skeptical? In fact, here's another little project for you this afternoon. Go home and Google a manuscript called P52. Just Google that, P52. You know what that is? It's a chunk of the Gospel of John that is about the size of a credit card. It's not very much, not very big. It's only a little bit of the Gospel of John. But that manuscript of John's Gospel is dated sometime to, again, the first or second century. That's about eight or 900 years older than the, the, the old, earliest copy of Josephus or Tacitus that we have on hand. So we believe historical accounts of Josephus and Tacitus. Why not the historical account of John? It's just as, if not much more of a reliable account than Josephus. So Richard Dawkins and Bart Ehrman and history scholars who believe in Jesus the man, but not Jesus the God-man, have all kinds of historical evidence staring them in the face that Jesus is God, but they refuse to believe. So why do they refuse to believe? I mean, again, it seems as though the historical evidence for Jesus and his divine nature is overwhelming. We have a whole book full of historical documents that are telling us that Jesus is God. So then why do people see that evidence and still choose to disbelieve? Can I venture a guess? And it has everything to do with what the angels said to the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth. In Luke 2, verse 11, the angels say, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. See, in, this, in Luke's historical account, the angel says exactly who Jesus is. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord. He is the one who has come to save you from your sins. But do you know why people don't want to believe that? Because in order to believe it, they'd have to admit that they need saving. 
They'd have to admit that they need a Savior, that they're a sinner, that there's a God who has a righteous standard by which they will be judged and according to which they will fall far short. And people don't want to admit that. They don't want to admit that they're wrong, that there's something wrong with them. See, this historical account from Luke 2 says that Jesus isn't just a man, but he's also the Christ. He's been anointed by God the Father for this very purpose, to come to the world, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for the sins of all who would believe. He didn't come to start a a new religion or to spur on a social revolution. He came to bring people unto God through himself. And this historical account from the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus is the Lord. And I think this is the one that people really don't like and why many refuse to believe that Jesus is God. Because if Jesus were more than just a man who existed, if he really was and is God, then they would have to concede that there is a Lord to whom they must bend the knee. There's a king that rules over them, a judge to whom they must be accountable. And for someone to believe that the baby born at Christmas is more than just a man, but is instead the God-man, they would have to come to the place where they can and will admit that he is God and they are not. Richard Dawkins, whom we quoted earlier, can't bring himself to admit that. Bart Ehrman, whom we quoted earlier, can't bring himself to admit that. Any of the scholars and historians that we've quoted earlier this morning who believe in the historical Jesus, but not that he was God, can't bring themselves to admit that. Can you? God is not asking you to take a blind leap of faith. If you're the kind of person who needs to see the evidence, God is more than happy to oblige you. He's given you a reliable, trustworthy, historical account of how he has worked throughout human history. He has shown you what he has done. He has shown you the evidence for Jesus' claims of divinity as he comes and he says, I and the Father are one. He has given you evidence, historical evidence, overwhelming historical evidence that he is God, that he has come to call you to repentance and to faith in him. And so the question then for you is, can you admit that you're a sinner? Can you admit that you need a Savior? Can you believe that Jesus is the Savior that you need and that he has perfectly taken your sin upon himself and gone to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin? And will you submit yourself to him as Lord by turning from your sin and following him in obedience. The Son of God has come as a baby. We sang that over and over again in our service this morning, declaring that the the eternal one is now wrapped in years. And all of those different pictures that we sang about today are just kind of mind-blowing, and we can't even wrap our minds around them. But it has happened And we have historical evidence that it has happened. And so the call is for you to trust in him and to submit yourself to his lordship. If you've never done that and would like to talk more about that, 
I would love to talk to you after the service today. Or if you'd like to just send me an email, I'd be happy to correspond with you that way as well. But the Son of God has come. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God in the flesh has come to earth. He has existed in our time and space, in our historical timeline. God has come. And what the Bible says about him is true. And it calls you for a response. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do thank you that you are a God of history. You are not a God of myth or a legend. You are a God who interjects himself into human history by putting on flesh himself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humility in coming as a man, coming to live, coming to earn our righteousness through your obedience and through your obedience by going to the cross and dying for the sins of all who would put their trust in you and for rising again, defeating death so that we might have a hope of that same resurrection. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are, the man, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lord, the Christ, the Savior. Lord, I ask that you would come into our hearts as this Christmas as we consider what you have done in history and in our own lives and that we would glorify you and praise you for all that you have done. Lord, I ask for any here this morning who have never believed, Holy Spirit, that you would stir up their heart, stir up their emotions and their their thinking, their intellect, that you would draw them to the truth, that you would grant them faith to believe in the God-man, Jesus Christ, so that they might come to know how much they are loved and the depth of their salvation. God, help them and help us all as we seek to honor you and worship you in the Christmas season. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.